Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M. And this week, we're going to dive into the world of cardiovascular disease. And to do that, we're going to have to sit down with Dr. Mark Houston. Who is Dr. Houston? Well, to me, he's a thinker. Somebody who's looking for the root causes of cardiovascular disease and metabolic problems in humans in this day and age. He's a researcher looking for the understandings of the why. He graduated from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, summa cum laude in chemistry before graduating with honors from Vanderbilt Medical School. He completed his medical internship and residency at the University of California in San Francisco. Then, returning back to Vanderbilt Medical Center, where he was chief resident in medicine and served on the faculty full-time for over a decade. He is the current director of the Hypertension Institute, where he and his team develop novel approaches to hypertension and ASCVD, or coronary vascular disease, by attending to root biological causes of disease. And that is the key here. We're going upstream, which, you know, I find to be the super important pathway towards healing. He also has a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, Connecticut, as well as a master's of science degree in functional and metabolic medicine from the University of South Florida in Tampa. He has written hundreds of papers, countless books, and chapters on cardiovascular disease and hypertension. He is one of the top researchers in preventative cardiology, and he is here today to share his wisdom with us. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark Houston. Well... Mark Houston, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, I can't wait to share the incredible wisdom you have in the space of cardiovascular health, which is uh, probably the first of the most important causes of death in humans and morbidity um, pre-death. And that's now something that's near and dear to my heart as uh, my father and family suffered from uh, familial hypercholesterolemia and many of our patients and uh, our loved ones are going through this. And I know this is something, unfortunately, that's starting early on. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to it. So I really want to start with a, a quote that I absolutely loved, written by Ulrich Laufs in the European Heart Journal. And it's a little bit long, so I apologize in advance, but it really lays the framework for where I want to go with this. So he says, modern humans are effectively stone agers living in a world vastly different from that of our ancient past, which involved food insecurity and countless other hardships. Routine seasonal food shortages can constrain human reproduction and volcanic winters and episodic catastrophes in our past caused sustained widespread famines that may have bottlenecked our global population to just a few thousand breeding pairs. Those who survived and reproduced under such harsh conditions may have been more likely to have a so-called thrifty genotype that made them more efficient at acquiring, utilizing, and storing calories and other nutrients. But around 10 to 20,000 years ago, humankind started gaining relief from several major burdens that limited our survival and reproduction, including starvation, predation, and infectious disease. These and other changes stabilize the human genome much as it was about 10,000 years ago with thrifty and non-thrifty genotypes alike now enjoying a remarkably higher probability of reproducing compared to just 2,000 years ago. But when confronted with modern society's high calorie diet and limited physical activity, those with thrifty genotypes may be predisposed to afflictions of affluence, which may include diabetes, obesity, and hypercholesterolemia or hyperlipidemia. In theory, traits predisposing to hyperlipidemia could have evolved to ensure adequate cholesterol levels. However, the biology of cholesterol synthesis and cholesterol and triglyceride transport, as described in the article that they wrote, suggest that those traits evolve to ensure adequate energy and energy stores, end quote. And so let's start there. 
what do we understand from your mind as to what are the reasons why humans now are suffering from these genes that were one time very evolutionary adaptive, adaptive and advantageous? And what were some of those advantages? Well, I think that that quote you just did is dead on right with what has happened with our genotype, which is 99 plus percent the same as our Stone Age ancestors. And um, without being repetitive of what he said so eloquently, I would put it in very simple terms like this. If your genotype is Stone Age genotype, unless you're living in the Stone Age, you're going to have a different response to your environmental stimuli, whatever they are, whether it's diet, exercise, and stress levels, et cetera. Plus, we're more sedentary. We don't go out and hunt our food now. Um, we don't have to worry about food um, being short because we have it year-round. So we're not, not eating food that is seasonal, and that's a big issue. Um, when nature provides seasonal food and you eat that seasonal food, it has a totally different effect on your cardiovascular system and other health problems that you might have. And as part of that thrifty gene, which was designed to survive, those who made it through it had genes at that time, which were appropriate and they were uh, designed to keep them alive. But now those genes become potentially detrimental because you're challenging those genes with environmental hazards that should not be there. Now, let me explain what I just said. Let's take lipids, for example, uh, high cholesterol, dyslipidemia. The genetics of dyslipidemia are very complicated, but if you had a high cholesterol as a Paleolithic person, it was there because there was a good reason for it. And the reason for it was survival. So you go back and ask the question, why do most people now and then have high cholesterol? Because most of the time it's really not genetic. Uh, it's not, there's not, I mean, there are genes that cause dyslipidemia, don't get me wrong, but they're not the big reason we have dyslipidemia. It's more of an environmental issue. So let's just say there are three major reasons that underlie most causes of dyslipidemia. Everybody knows the first one, which is micronutrients and macronutrients. It's just, you know, bad nutrition. But the second and third, nobody talks about because they don't realize the importance of the LDL and HDL as a protective mechanism. So the other two are, one is infectious diseases of any type, and the third are toxins. So the development of high LDL and high HDL were designed to protect you from microtoxins and also from problems with uh, heavy metals and problems with infections, because that's Infections were the main reason people died back then. They died early ages because of infections. They didn't get atherosclerosis because they died too early. But if you right. transport that into a modern society, then those protective HDL and LDL become 
not protected so much, but they can become detrimental. Right. And let's drill down there a little bit, because I think that's so poignant to the story that's missing in allopathic medicine, especially as I was trained. It's LDL is a problem. It's the bad cholesterol. HDL is the good cholesterol, blah, blah, blah. We know all that's completely garbage. Um, essentially, we know that if you have a high LDL number and dysfunction, you are at higher risk. Yes, that's true as stated. But what's the reasoning behind it is very clear. So if we're saying, let's say, LDL and HDL lipoprotein activity is being driven by actions that we're doing in our lives, let's take xenobiotics, for example. So if we're exposed to high levels of toxins, the process of how the lipoproteins deal with the toxin is what? So HDL is your first line of defense. LDL is the second line of defense. So if you have, let's just pick a nice heavy metal so everybody can get it contextually, high mercury level, very mm -hmm. common. Um, the HDL will uh, attract and attack, control, and then excrete the mercury or try to contain it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you just have to contain it. And once the HDL has done its job and it's depleted, it's dysfunctional, whatever, LDL comes in. Well, if both of those are attacking the mercury, it's easy to understand that if you keep having high mercury levels or keep insulting your body with high mercury, what does the body do to continue to contain the mercury? It makes more HDL and more LDL. So now the LDL <clears throat> becomes more pathogenetic because it's doing its job, but it also gets damaged in the process. And then that process becomes atherogenic through, you know, inflammation, oxidative stress, and vascular immune dysfunction. And the HDL becomes dysfunctional or worse case, it actually becomes an atherosclerotic molecule. And all the things that we have checked in the past, the, you know, the traditional lipid profile, even the advanced lipid profile, doesn't get to the real problem that we're dealing with, which is the HDL and LDL are not the problem. It's what happens to them and what they then do that causes atherosclerosis. For example, um, if your HDL is full of garbage, whether it's mercury or something else, the HDL number can be 100, 120. And you say, well, wow, HDL is really protecting you. No, that's actually bad because when it gets yep. that high, it's not doing anything and it can be proatherogenic. All right, and that's the U-shaped curve of the HDL story. The higher it is and the lower it is, the morbidity or mortality yeah, is at exactly. good at both ends. It's terrible, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when you when you get a lipid profile now, and I tell people, it's just, you get an HDL, you don't know what you got. <laughs> you have no clue. Uh, so the only way to figure it out is to get a dysfunctional HDL, which you can get through Cleveland Heart Lab, and, and then you can tell if there's a problem. And the same with LDL, you have to really look at the particle number and the particle size to see, you know, whether it's really atherogenic, is it oxidized or acetylated? Right. So that's piece one. So the for, the xenobiotics being cleared by the lipoproteins. And then that sort of gets into part two, which we're going to get a little granular here before we go, get, go back upstream again to how this all starts from birth. So in the xenobiotic story, the HDL and the LDL, or at least the HDL is going back to the liver and hits the scavenger, the SRB1 protein. Right. And then it gets, uh, you know, recycled out and 
the toxins are cleared and the liver is a great way to relieve toxins. But, oh, by the way, this brings in now stage two of your story, infectious disease. And it's now very clear and it's been actually known about for a couple of decades, but it's been scoffed at by, again, traditional cardiology, that this is involved actually in clearance of foreign bacterial cell wall debris. But, oh, by the way, SRB1 is the same thing viruses use to enter cells. So these molecules, these lipoproteins have the ability to thwart infections. So what's the story there? Again, is this all based on historical evolutionary advantageous adaptations to surviving in periods of high risk infection? Well, that's part of it. Um, but the story expands when you realize that the HDL and the LDL, when they're full of whatever they're full of bacteria, virus, fungus, TB, you know, it can be any, any infection whatsoever. Theoretically, those molecules can contain those and also excrete them, but often that can't happen. So what does it do? It just contains it. And then where does it go? Well, it goes through the cardiovascular system in particular. So you'll find dead, alive RNA and DNA of all these organisms in plaque, for example. And we now realize that coronary heart disease is directly related to your total plaque burden from the time you're in utero to the time you die. All right. Perfect segue. Not planned, <laughs> but this is the way to roll. Let's go back to that. So you are inside mom. You are a sperm and an egg. You meet and you start growing, right? When, where, how does ASCVD begin and grow over time? And again, as stated, we know the upstream risk factors, diet, toxins, we'll get into those later, but what's the process of ASCVD development in the coronary vasculature in the simplest way or get as granular as you want? Okay. So I've always said that atherosclerosis starts in utero. People go, you got to be kidding. How could that possibly happen? So the atherosclerotic process, coronary heart disease, starts as soon as you're old enough to have a cardiovascular system in your mother. And if you think about it, well, where does the baby get all of its nutrients? Where does the baby get all of the toxins coming? Well, I get them from the mother. So whatever the mother's got, the baby's going to get. The placenta can maybe filter out some of that stuff, but it can't filter out everything. So in utero, whatever the mother is presented with is going to show up either genetically or epigenetically. And just for the audience sake, when you talk about epigenetics, that is what that means. Epi means over and above the genetic piece. But the problem with epigenetics is that it can go for several generations, even though it's not quote a genetic disorder. Let me give you an example. If a mother is starved during her pregnancy, the children for the next two or three generations are higher risk for coronary heart disease, diabetes, and hypertension. Uh, so we know that these processes are going on for a long, long period of time. But what we have to recognize in modern medicine is we've got to be starting our diagnostics, our prevention and treatment early. I mean, really early. This is where the pediatricians have to jump in and start looking at things. Uh, I don't I don't treat usually below the age of 13, but I know that this disease starts before age 13 because I've got 13 year olds now that are hypertensive and diabetic. Um, and so if you go back and say, let's talk to the pediatric world here and let's get aggressive with these younger people, maybe we can slow this thing down or stop it. 
Yeah. And I know in Europe, um, they're treating down all the way to age six with statins uh, when they have FH or, you know, they recognize what they consider is called familial hypercholesterolemia with high levels. And in the United States, right. I don't think we're doing that at all. I mean, no. the vast majority of kids I've sent in the past 25 years to our, our cardiologists and no offense being sent to them is that it's all diet exercise, which again, is all the exact route we should be going to start. But in the absence of the ability of the child to change their mechanisms of disease onset, medicines, you know, just it's it, to me, it's sort of like having an asthmatic and saying, well, here's the diet and here's the exercise you need to do and toxin avoidance for asthma. But oh, by the way, you still have disease, but we're not going to give you inhalers. And I think we're sort of at that stage with ASCVD that it's so far away in our mind's eye that we're not treating kids. And I think we really have a reckoning to come to terms with this because the disease, and we're going to get into a little more granular of this pretty soon around kids, but I think the disease is getting a lot worse, a lot sooner uh, than we previously thought. And, and at least in the last two decades, it seems to be getting dramatically worse, at least in our clinic with the volume of kids we're seeing that are metabolically dysfunctional. Let's just call it that. And and it's it's quite scary. Yes, yeah, definitely moving decades earlier than you know when you and i started in practice and so we we develop a whole series of tests because we want to find this before they have an event the data shows that 60 percent of men and women have their first mi and that's their first symptom that they have coronary heart disease yeah let's talk about two mutations to sort of give folks an understanding of sort of a, a little bit of the story of what you're saying. Let's look at PCSK9. So crazy name. I get it wrong every time. pro Yeah, you're right. Whatever. Yeah, it's a crazy abbreviation. But so this genetic mutation, if you have the mutation, the uh, it's a loss of function, you then have more LDL receptors, so these lipoprotein receptors on the liver cell surface, which means you grab more LDLs out of circulation, which means you decrease the amount of LDL in the bloodstream that has a chance to get to the heart and cross over into the vessel wall. That was the whole beginning of this whole new class of drugs in the in this category. When we start looking at this stuff, was that the seminal moment when that work was done that really said to us, okay, ApoB particles or these lipoproteins are the major biomarker, if we can call it that, of ASCVD risk? Apolipoprotein B correlates pretty well with LDL particle number. And those are the two major driving risks for coronary heart disease and MI. LDL particle number actually trumps ApoB just a little bit as far as prognostic risk. That's why I always do advanced lipid profile. Okay. Uh, your LDL particle number is high and your LDL size is small. That's the greatest of the risk. Right. If you drive the LDL particle number down to normal, then the particle size becomes a non-confounding variable. Got so it. typically, you know, if you want to use LDL, uh, that's going to be probably around 60 to get that uh, uh, LDL particle number down to maybe like 700. And if you get that, the ApoB is usually less than 70. Those tend to run in the same organized pathways. Um, but the problem with, with that is um, you've got you've to look at the balance. The, the LDL is the garbage, okay? Right. Um, but the garbage that you have in this native form, that is native LDL, is not atherogenic. And if it were, we'd all be dead. Right. 
So the LDL has to be converted into a an atherogenic foreign molecule that is considered, you know, foreign to the body, just like you attack a bacteria, then your body's going to attack the LDL. So once it becomes modified and that's typically oxidized or acetylated, goes into the subendothelial layer and attaches to these little prongs in the trees, it's stuck. Well, it's stuck there and then it starts sending out all these messages to bring in inflammation and oxidative stress. That's what sets off the atherosclerotic process. So you have to kind of think of this. Well, yeah, it is LDL, but it's modified LDL. And the LDL is, itself is sending messages to cause coronary heart disease atherosclerosis. So it's part of the problem, but it's not the problem. It's right. it's more, it's very complex. There's like 45 steps between right. that and your plaque. Right, exactly. And so we're going to start pulling on that one, that string now. Hypertension, you know, you've studied and probably done a absolute large amount of work in this field of hypertension, high blood pressure, and how that's evolved in this because it can, the pressure damages the endothelial lining, which then causes problems. But a lot of this disease, to your point, starting in utero well before blood pressure is a major factor. Is that correct to say? Yeah. And the, I think the message I want to leave with your audience is that hypertension is a bi-directional process. That means that your blood vessel is unhealthy before you become hypertensive right. and your hypertension then causes more vascular damage. It's a two-way street. So right. you have to begin to think of, all right, if you think of hypertension as a genetic problem, and we, we can identify a lot of different genes that are associated with hypertension, but there's right. not just one gene. And, right. But the real issue is the arterial system. The vascular biology is abnormal in patients well beyond, maybe decades before they even develop hypertension. So hypertension really is a marker of abnormal blood vessels, particularly arterial health, and endothelial dysfunction, glycocalyx dysfunction occur decades before your blood pressure starts to go up. And if you took, let's like say, a 13-year-old kid whose both parents had hypertension, and he he doesn't yet have hypertension, but you do like a 2D echo and you do endopad and other arterial function tests, he's going to have abnormalities in those tests in his heart and his blood vessels already before his blood pressure starts to increase. Right. Right. So let's now pull on the thread of the three main causes of oxidized LDL or oxidized lipoproteins. And, and let's just say for the audience, you know, the oxidation is like rusting. And you're basically rusting on the inside and rusting is doing damage to the cell wall. And primarily we're thinking about damage to mitochondria or the energy powerhouse of the cell. And when we start to damage that, the cells go into states of dysfunction, which then targets them by the immune system, as you stated, which then leads to all the complex events down the hill. So let's start with diet. What are the dietary influences in modern society that are driving the dysfunction that we see of as as ASCVD or the or the cholesterol issues, starting with the most severe going down, um, non excuse me refined carbohydrates and starches are the primary driving risk for LDL dysfunction and coronary heart disease. So white food, uh, bread, pasta, white rice, white potatoes. Uh, right after that, you probably put in trans fats and then some, but not all, saturated fats. 
mostly those that have a carbon length of 12 and higher, you would want to eliminate ones that are 12 and less, probably okay to eat. So those are the top three. And you balance those out, of course, with a lot of vegetables and fruit and good quality meat. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been following Rick Johnson's work a lot lately and uh, the uric acid story, I think is super fascinating here with, especially in kids. One of the main problems children have is the high consumption of refined carbohydrates, but primarily as sugar beverages. Yep. And as his work has shown, that's phenomenal is the, the common terminal pathway of fructose degradation is uric acid and uric acid is an incredibly powerful trigger of inflammasome activation which then leads to all of these oxidative or you know irritated events in the local area which then recruits white blood cells to cause more oxidation so it's a circuitous argument of oh boy the upstream triggers are driving this all downstream and unfortunately as you're you've known in your clinic as well kids are eating this stuff three times a day and the federal government's paying for it in the school systems and we're, we're fighting against a really difficult wave. Yeah, the, the fructose, and it's high fructose corn syrup, uh, not only is it uh, hyperuricemia, but also non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Those are two big problems that are showing up in kids. And then, of course, that drives diabetes as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really scary thought. And I, you know, and the, the other part that was pretty mind blowing to me in his research was the whole pathway to, um, glucose polymers in a starch form can reverse engineer fructose via the polyol pathway, again, leading to more uric acid and more inflammasomes. And I'm, as I'm preparing for this talk, I'm about to do on asthma. One of the main triggers of asthma irritation happens to be uric acid, inflammasome activation in the lung. And oh, by the way, same process, right? So it's almost like Many of these chronic diseases, whether they're atopic or cardiovascular or diabetic or metabolic, they're all being driven by similar processes, at least as long as we look at it from the food input. Would that be something you would agree with? Absolutely. And, and the other thing is we're very aggressive at treating hyperuricemia. In men, we get it below six and women below five. Yeah. And and are you doing that primarily through allopurinol, antioxidase inhibitors? Or are you trying That's that with uh, tart down, cherry yeah. juice? Yeah, well, allopurinol to drive it down, the tart cherry juice prevents a lot of the crystallization in the joints. So I use right. tart cherry juice, celery seed extract or celery juice, and allopurinol. That's the top three. And six is your marker of, of where you want to keep it below? Yes. Yeah. I remember med school, uric acid was 100% protein degradation. <laughs> and if you kept protein under control, right. now we learn it's, yeah, all right, there's so much more to biology and inflammation. It's just unbelievable. All right, let's pull on lever two. So toxins, how are toxins primarily driving ASCVD? Um, and, and I, you know, again, oxidation, we hear that part, but let's take an example of a cigarette smoker inhaling the smoke. What's the process to enhancing the ASCVD risk? Well, smoking is multifactorial. I mean, it's the tobacco smoke is ubiquitous in causing endothelial dysfunction, glycocalyx dysfunction, uh, it oxidizes your uh, your LDL, um, vasoconstriction. I mean, the, the list of there is huge. But if yep. you look at other toxins, well, let's say heavy metals versus uh, pesticides, organicides, the main thing they do is they, they kill your mitochondria. So mitochondrial dysfunction is rampant. And once that happens, you know, you've got a major problem with cell death and early aging. And it's hard to get that out and also to regain mitochondrial function. Yeah. And, and mitochondria 
probably being centered to many of the diseases we're dealing with right now. I think of that in the case of uh, autism spectrum disorders and many of the other problems we're looking at just in the developmental space, how important mitochondrial activity and function is. So lever, lever number three, uh, let's see, it was diet. It was xenobiotics and blank on what you said was the third level of the major drivers. Infection. Uh, oh, infectious disease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's hit on infectious disease. What's the what's the what's the paradigm there in infectious disease triggering ASCVD? So, um, any infection, you can name any of them, um, set off endothelial dysfunction, glycocalyx dysfunction. Um, they modify your HDL and your LDL. Um, then all of that feeds into the same process that we talked about earlier, where your LDL sits off at 45 different mechanisms of atherosclerotic plaque. And every one of those steps, you can actually modify either with a supplement, diet, or a drug. So the thinking, which is so short-lived in this country, is not the process, but sort of the cholesterol at the beginning and the plaque at the end Mm-hmm. but nothing in between right and it's like okay wait a minute can we can we reorganize the way we think and hit all these pathways because if we do that you can actually slow the process maybe even prevent the process from happening um so when i developed this mechanism of atherosclerotic processes it was it really wasn't even recognized i had to go through and put it together pieces and puzzles and figure it all out but i came up with a treatment for every step and and um so and i've got people that i've been following now for 10 years who follow these these processes and we pretty well stamped out progression of chd in our clinic we got people whose coronary calcium scores drop whose uh, plaque regresses documented with either ccta or angiograms so we know even in adults with established disease, you have the ability to take it back. Can you imagine what we could do if we started, you know, young kids on the same process? They wouldn't even yeah. get there. Yep. Yeah. And that's, and that's the key. Go upstream as far as you can. And then you don't have to deal with all these problems down, down river or yeah. wherever, wherever it's uh, to your point, the, uh, the main lever that we're pulling on is just treating the cholesterol and not dealing with all the inflammatory pieces along the way and wondering why things aren't working out. And this gets to the whole HDL biology story of the drugs that were made and had complete failures because all it was doing was looking at the actual HDL particle number, not the quality of the actual HDL particle and how it's functioning. So let's let's go there. And so when we think about the LDL and the HDL particle, their major function is to carry cholesterol and triglycerides, so the fat storage form of energy around the body. And because it's a fat molecule, it has to have a carrier protein because it can't go through the bloodstream easily that way. So the inflammation that we've just spoken to being driven by lifestyle processes, whether they're diet or in chemical toxin or infectious disease and and Let's get back to infectious disease in a minute. I want to talk about microbiome of the mouth and of the gut. But before we get to that, so the HDL particle in and of itself is supposed to be functioning to take cholesterol in general out of tissue and then give it to LDL and take triglyceride and reverse it the other direction normally. 
and and then this does this back and forth. Is that the story behind this? The yeah, that's the transfer protein. So, um, HDL its primary function is reverse cholesterol transport, or it's also called cholesterol efflux capacity (CEC) and RCT. That's its primary function. So it goes to the tissue, attaches these different receptors. It takes the uh, LDL out of the tissue, and it goes through all these different enzymatic steps, a very long process. And the last step is it deposits in the SRB1 receptor in the liver and gets rid of it. And then it recycles itself. Now, that's assuming it can unload itself. If it can't unload itself, it's just circulating around as dysfunctional HDL. So you've got to make sure that process is unloading the truck. Garbage truck has to unload itself. Right. Now, but HDL has other functions too. It, obviously, it's got like 15 other functions. You know, it's an antioxidant, anti inflammatory. So it is protective in many other ways other than just that RCT transport mechanism. Um, and when it works well, it doesn't have to increase its number to work. So it stays within a nice tight range. But when it's dysfunctional, the body makes more to make up for what it doesn't have. And that's when your levels go to these, these strongly levels, but they're they're not doing anything. And that's when it becomes dysfunctional and or pro-oxidant. And that's when right. it's actually like LDL, it actually can cause atherosclerosis. Right. And 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 this begs the question again in the human condition if somebody is not changing these upstream risk factors i.e you're not getting away from mercury in your sushi that you're eating every day you're not getting away from the refined carbohydrates you you can take supplements and things and drugs all day long and potentially you may lower number but you may not be altering function and so you're still dealing with the difficulty of what's the upstream target that we're dealing with let's talk about one enzyme in particular in hdl the peroxinase one uh, i guess some people call it pon one mm -hmm. that's an enzyme that's involved in producing uh, oxidant radicals, correct? Yeah. And so its function is to help deal with infections or deal with something else going on in the body. That gets damaged to your point. These proteins are sitting out on the cell surface of this HDL molecule and inflammation is damaging these functional proteins. Is that correct? Yeah, so let's, let's think of the HDL molecule as a car. Mm-hmm. It's composed of many parts and you can lose certain parts of your car and your car will still run. Well, HDL has about a hundred parts, proteomes, liposomes, enzymes. So when you start to lose function, it's not all or none. It can be zero to a hundred and the more dysfunctional, the worse things get. But PON1, for example, is one of the big ones and it, when it goes out, you've got some major dysfunction occurring. And one of the treatments we have for PON1 damage is pomegranate. Pomegranate seeds and or juice if you don't have a glucose issue. And that does help correct that. So HDL functionality, we have the ability with certain uh, products that we have developed that can restore HDL function through different nutritional mechanisms. Do we understand how the proteins get made dysfunctional, how that actually happens? Is it the mitochondrial damage inside the cell that damages them, or is it actually something clipping them on the outside as a, from an oxidant perspective or from a white blood cell or something else attacking? 
Yeah, there are three major um, causes. One is oxidative stress, second is inflammation, and the third is vascular or HDL immune dysfunction, where you actually have T cells and B cells attacking. So if you, you kind of think those are the three underlying reasons, and then you have to back up from there what's what's causing those, but that's the primary reason HDL becomes dysfunctional. Yeah. And so, folks, I, I think that's the clear thing everyone needs to hear, because uh, for, gosh, better part of three decades, all we've been talking about is LDL and HDL number, HDL being good cholesterol, LDL be, being bad cholesterol. And that whole story is upside down. The reality, as you've heard very clearly here, is that what we really need to understand is function. And and without understanding function, we really don't understand how to reverse the process, because you don't know where you are on the continuum of damage. And, and so I, I think that's super powerful. All right, let's go back to that pin. So infectious disease. Um, I had just had a couple of podcasts with some folks in the land of dentistry. So Doug Thompson and Peter Unger, and we talked about how the dental origin of dental disease in the oral microbiome is at play for human health and particularly uh, with Doug Thompson's work at cardiovascular disease. So the function of the microbiome in ASCVD, let's go there. What's the story with that? Well, as you know, the human microbiome has a lot more genes than the human has. And all of these microbiome genes have uh, effects all over the body that determine everything in your health and not just cardiovascular. Um, so if you have an abnormal microbiome, meaning you have what's called pathogenic bacteria as opposed to good bacteria, they make a lot of different things like TMAO and other uh, nasty compounds that can go out and cause atherosclerosis, renal damage, diabetes, high cholesterol, all kinds of issues. Literally, if you can think of it, the microbiome can be associated with it. So um, in cardiovascular disease, uh, the microbiome itself, the things that they produce, and then the leaky gut, so if you've got all that stuff sitting there and it's just an open sieve, goes straight into the portal vein and then out to the system, it's like you have no filtration system and whatever's in your gut, if it's bad, is going to start running into your arteries. And then you have like a sewer system with all that mess going in and going into your arteries, making plaque. And then all those bacteria or whatever else is coming through can get deposited anywhere biofilms, plaque, you name it. They sit there and they do their thing, which is cause the three finite responses, oxidative stress, inflammation, immune dysfunction. And you, it's hard to put out that fire. And once it gets started, uh, unless you're aggressive with your treatment, and sometimes even with aggressive treatment, you can't get to some of these things, kind of like Fort Knox, they're just locked up. Nothing gets in there. Yeah. And uh, I think of biofilms like the example would be walking by a stream and you have that green slime on a rock and you measure the bacteria or any microorganisms right outside that slime. You don't get many, but as soon as you go underneath that slime, it's teeming with bacteria and very hard to penetrate and cause that to go away. And so that is very scary. And then unfortunately, as you know, you, you've stated the upstream reasons to dysfunctional microbiomes is all the same reasons for other other parts of the oxidative and inflammatory cascade. So it's all tied together. Yeah. And then on top of that, if you have some sort of GI problem, what do you usually get for it? 
a PPI, a H2 blocker. Uh, and then you've got all kinds of problems now with high, high, low acid production, malabsorption issues, kidney problems, heart problems, and all the things that go with those those two drugs. Yeah. I mean, it is sort of crazy to think, you know, and when I was in medical school, 2000 hours of pharmacology, most of which is band-aid symptom therapy, 16 hours of nutrition therapy, which is primary driver of all health and human support for, for best outcome. And here we are talking in kids about, I send a patient to GI for reflux and <laughs> to look for the upstream cause. They come back on a PPI, raising their pH, which means they're not breaking down foods well, they're not killing bacteria and viruses as well. So we're actually seeding the microbiome dysfunctionally. Exactly. It, it's madness to think this is the way we were educated at top shelf institutions. And now we're wondering why we're having a hard time unwinding these stories. Uh, it, it It is quite, quite incredible. Yeah. I, I, I wonder what, what happened in the halls of medicine all these years, why we stopped thinking pathophysiology was the key to understanding outcome and how pharmacology became the only reason to outcome uh, answers with RCTs and pretty crazy. So I know you've done, I think I had maybe four hours of nutritional biochemistry when I was in med school. <laughs> so it was a vast improvement of four X by the time I caught going through yeah, Emory. <laughs> <laughs> So let's, let's take your prescription. I mean, you've probably done more work in this space than anyone in the country for preventative cardiovascular health. What's your prescription for avoiding ASCVD from birth? I mean, I, you've already pulled on a couple of levers, clearly rever, re, yeah. removing refined carbohydrates and processed foods totally. Um, some, you know, getting rid of trans fats totally. And then long chain saturated fats moderation is the key. Sound right? Exactly. So recovering the nutrition piece. Um, the exercise piece is to do an hour a day, preferably, of mixed aerobics and resistance training. Ideal body composition, that means a body fat of 22% or less in a female and 16% or less in a male. Don't smoke. And then we get into supplements that we've been using now for over a decade. And I have a very explicit cardiovascular plaque reduction, plaque prevention, cardiac calcium score prevention reduction program. So let me tell you what it is. Yep. We start, can I, can I use names on here? Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. So we start with a nitric oxide booster and that's called Vasconox. Vasconox is from Calroy Labs. Then we had a glycocalyx booster and that's uh, Arteriosil, which is also from Calroy Labs. The reason those two are important as your first two things is because everybody just about who has any mild atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is going to have endothelial dysfunction and glycocalyx dysfunction. So you got to get those two systems repaired immediately and get your nitric oxide levels up, plus the protection that comes with other means by those two products. I would venture to guess glycocalyx is pretty foreign to a lot of people. Can you explain exactly what the glycocalyx is? Yes. Um, outside the uh, the arterial wall um, is are two things that are important. The first is a glycocalyx, which is, I like to describe it as a bear coat. It's a little hairy projection, uh, very thin, and it, it traps bad things from getting into the endothelium. Uh, it has all kinds of antioxidant enzymes in it. It has nitric oxide in it. And it's the first line of attack that protects the endothelium from damage. 
Well, if things get through the glycocalyx, then you get endothelial dysfunction. And once you have those two out, then the vascular system goes haywire. So you got to have both of them repaired. Okay, okay, great. So that's the first two. Then we add <clears throat> omega-3 fatty acids. And the dose there varies anywhere from a gram today to five grams per day of balanced omega-3s. So we have to have DHA, EPA, GLA, and gamma-delta tocopherol. The best product on the market is called EFA Cert Supreme, and it's made by Biotics Labs. They're, they're out of Texas. Then we add kyolic garlic. Uh, it's a aged garlic made in Japan. It has all kinds of wonderful effects on blood pressure and lipids and cardiovascular function. Um, and it's if you do in the aged form, there's no odor associated with it. Um, then we add usually high dose magnesium, uh, chelated form. Use whatever you like, malate, glycinate, whatever, but at least 500 milligrams uh, twice a day. Um, curcumin, uh, high dose can be anywhere from one to five grams a day, depending on what you're treating. Uh, quercetin, uh, usually 500 milligrams twice a day. And then that's that's your that's your primary foundation. And if you want to go further to sort of bring the mitochondria in, which I think is important, there's a lot of things you can do there too. You know, you've got acetyl carnitine, lipoic acid, and you've got a couple of really good peptides that we're using, SS31 and MOTC. One of them protects the mitochondria, the other one cleans up the garbage in the mitochondria. With that program. Over the last 10 years, we've had tremendous results in reducing cardiovascular events, plaque, and calcium score. Right. And and so everyone listening, did you hear any drug names in there? Like true drug names? None. And so what you're doing, from what I can understand, is you're going back to the biological pathophysiology and saying, okay, where are the breakpoints in this pathway from the beginning to the end? And how can we help the mechanistic function of each step to go back to what is natural and neutral to avoid the process from progressing. And frankly, in your case, you're stating very clearly, you're actually regressing former damage. Right. Now, right. if someone has a, a high LDL particle number or high APOB, you're going to have to drive that down pretty low. Yep. Uh, the new, the new, guidelines and we follow these pretty well is to have an ldl of 30 to 60 or a particle number of about 700 or apob mm -hmm. less than 70. there's mm -hmm. a lot of ways to do that you know yep. you've got red yeast rice you've got statins you've got uh, um, uh, other drugs like enclycerin and psk9 inhibitors so that piece is the ldl story but the piece i gave you is the other 45 processes Right, right, and again, because you're what we're talking about here is the 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 standard cardiovascular effect is still important, which is driving down the concentration of the LDL in the vasculature so it doesn't make a gradient that allows it to get into the intima after it's after it's 
irritated by the immune system or engulfed in macrophages makes the foam cells, all that good stuff. But you're speaking to the bigger part of functionality of what pro particles are there and how well they work to do their job, correct? Right. And yeah. then there, there are two other things that, that I want to reemphasize in the diet that we sort of hinted at them, but I think it's you have to do this. Get some pomegranate in your diet, ever how you want to, and get green tea in your diet. Because the pomegranate actually has been shown to regress carotid plaque plus other effects, pond one, et cetera. And green tea or green tea extract stops partly the oxidation of LDL. And then we also increase monounsaturated fats, which is basically olive oil products. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so to me, this is this is where, when you think about the words functional medicine, integrative medicine, really it should just be just what we call medicine now. Because what you're stating is essentially looking at the entire frame of why the system isn't working appropriately from medicines where you need them, but most importantly, going after all of those targets along that continuum of inflammation that leads to the issues that we deal with as dysfunctional HDL, dysfunctional LDL, and all the secondary products, I mean, problems related to that. One so, other piece that, let me, if I could, yeah. um, that I think is important, as you get older and you're under more oxidative stress or inflammation, your coenzyme Q10 levels go down to two. I, I check that in every patient. I haven't found one patient yet that's had a normal CoQ10 level. That's defined as a level of three by Cleveland Heart Lab. So virtually everybody in my office gets on a CoQ10 supplement till their level is above three. Which one is your favorite? Do you use MitoQ? Do you use which one? So I, I use a lot of MitoQ for the heart because mm -hmm. of diastolic dysfunction or CHF. And then I use a regular CoQ10 you can use, you know, reduced or oxidized form. I, I don't know that it really makes that much difference. I'll start with about 200 milligrams a day, and then I just take it up to whatever it takes till I get their level at three. Right. And for the guests, MitoQ is special because its ability to get into the mitochondria better? Yeah, it gets into the cardiac mitochondria a thousandfold greater than regular CoQ10. Okay. Yeah. And in, in your mind... From a pediatric perspective, I know you're not a, a pediatric cardiologist or have that whole, you know, that training center. But if you were to think about your own child who is seven years old and he has ASCVD risk based on your familial history, how would you start out the program aside from diet and toxin avoidance, which we've sort of we've hit on many times? Would you start any supplements in this young age group? What would you do? Um, I would, you know, obviously clean up all the environmental stimuli coming in. Uh, then I'd probably go ahead and run some of the fancy tests we have in the hypertension institute and see kind of where he is. Now, if everything looks good, then you can make actually make a case for, well, he looks good now, but not going to be looking good maybe later. So let's start thinking about maybe some simple prevention things that are safe in a kid. Well, virtually everything I told you is safe. Everything I told mm -hmm. you is safe in a kid. Just mm -hmm. you reduce the dose depending on yep. their body size. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, I agree. I mean, you could you could take you could make a good case for virtually all those things as a really aggressive prevention program, even in a young child. Yeah, and I think for me, the frustration in a lot of these things has been for the past couple of decades is that a uh, seventy percent of my population is Medicaid, and and getting any of these supplements covered is almost impossible. And yeah. frankly, getting a lot of the testing done is is very difficult too. So it's a it's a very hard 
hard fight. Uh, you know, most of my levers that I can pull on are lifestyle based diet, exercise, toxin avoidance as best we can. And then I try and tackle some of these other things with the folks that can afford it, but it's a very difficult sell to get many of these supplements at the, at the cost price, at the cost yeah. price that they are. It's interesting. I was at a seminar about three weeks ago where I gave eight hours of lecture and somebody in the audience after I finished said, okay, when would you start these and when would you stop them? And I said, start them as early as you can and take them for life. Yeah. 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 And, and and you're speaking primarily again, this so everyone listening, this is not for the whole population. This is for those who have ASCVD risk, correct? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is like you're a diabetic, you take insulin, right? So it's like, this is your risk factor for one of the horsemen of the apocalypse of your death. And so, yeah, it's, it is what it is. And, you know, I think we talked, uh, you know, earlier about, you know, uric acid, I think it's super important that people are fit, focusing on uric acid. So let's, let's dive into that. Now, what are the basic tests? If you're okay, speaking to them that you guys are drawing on your high risk patients. Right. So we have the entire array of uh, non-invasive cardiovascular testing in the hypertension institute. So let me give you the names of them. The first one is called pulse wave analysis. It's made by Hypertension Diagnostics, Inc. And it measures two things. It measures endothelial dysfunction, and it measures the compliance or elasticity of small, medium, and large size arteries. When those are bad, you already got pr problems with endothelium and arterial health. So that's a really early marker. Then we have plasmography, which looks at sympathetic, parasympathetic balance, measures heart function, predicts risk for um, uh, coronary artery atherosclerosis, coronary vasoconstriction, uh, et cetera. Then we have a uh, ATCOR, which measures central arterial blood pressure and augmentation index, which is sort of a, a pulse wave that goes down and bounces back. So it tells you if your arteries are stiff or not based on the augmentation of the systolic pressure as it comes back. Uh, we have ABIs, both at rest and exercise. Um, 2D echoes, carotid IMT, carotid duplex, cardiopulmonary exercise stress test, coronary calcium scoring. Uh, and then, you know, if we have to get more advanced, we've got CCTAs with um, fractional flow reserve, uh, clearly studies would look at soft plaque and hard plaque, uh, PET scans, MRI, MRA. I mean, we, we can do anything stratified based on what we're finding on the early testing. Yeah. And, 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 in the, you know, for, for the basic clinic like mine, you know, we could, we could in young kids, you know, clearly a, a lipid, uh, an advanced lipid profile, uh, uric acid level would come to mind. Uh, I would think even, you know, potentially a, a myeloperoxidase would come to mind as a possible test, uh, high sensitivity CRP, which rarely in our clinic is as abnormal, even when the kids are significantly metabolically challenged. Uh, what else would you do baseline uh, ALT for risk of NAFLD? Any other thoughts? Well, certainly, um, yeah, I was, uh, unfortunately, I was, just, I was just concentrating on non-blood tests, but as you Sorry. pointed out, you know, there's a whole list of blood tests that we do. I mean, it's, it's enormous, <laughs> the things right. we check. And we check right. for heavy metals and toxicology and everybody. Uh, we do advanced lipid testing. We do, and we have a whole panel for, Oxidative stress, inflammation, and vascular immune dysfunction, uh, MPO being one of them, C-reactive protein, interleukins, TNF-alpha. I mean, all these things are part of that process, as well as your, you know, your routine things you get. But also, we check micronutrients. We yeah. check uh, food sensitivities. We check 
uh, stool pack for abnormal microbiome. We do cardiovascular genetics called Cardia-X so that we personalize the medicine. And, and you, you, you know this. Everybody comes in cannot be treated like a bell-shaped curve or textbook. You have to have their genetics in front of you, and you have to put that with their environmental history and figure out what to do. Now, I can't change your genetics, but I can change your genetic expression. And based on the Cardia-X genetics, there's 25 things we check. I have a program where if you have, let's say, 9P21, which is one of the bad heart attack genes, I can alter the expression of that gene just through dietary things or through a supplement. Rarely, actually rarely, I think there's only one or two genes that require a drug. Almost all the others are dietary, exercise, or supplement related, where you can alter a CBD gene. Right, right. It's quite amazing. I know uh, we haven't gotten this, probably not going to spend the time on it, but there's always been told to me that the one cardiovascular risk factor, LP little a, lipoprotein little a is one of these, oh, you got it, you got it, don't test it again. You're in, it's just part of your risk factors for having it. It's not an uncommon risk, but is there in your mind, and and I'm, I know there is, but what is the lever to pull on for LP little a lowering? So LP little a is... Uh, clearly genetic, it, it's pretty steady. It doesn't go up and down very much with anything. We don't have any really good therapies for LP little a right now, except for niacin, right. NAC, and um, there's a there's a um, natural compound called uh, Corona Berry, which uh, works about half the time. But it, And PCSK9s work. They drop at about 30%. But Nothing really that effective, but there are two microRNA drugs that are at fast track with the FDA that will drop it 95, 98%. Yeah. Super fascinating. This conversation, you know, the coming back to the beginning, these genes have always been advantageous to humans until we've changed our environment so much. We're polar bears in the desert now for our cardiovascular genetics. And you've given the primer on what it takes to, effectively live within this environment in a way that is sustaining and, and longevity promoting or what do we call health span. Well, so think about this one, Chris, when you started out with your quote, uh, we, the people that survive, survive with survival genes, right? Right. What does LP little a do? It makes you clot. Yeah. Think about it. I mean, if yeah. you're out there hunting saber tooth tigers or whatever, the people who got bitten and bled to death didn't make it, but the people who got bitten and clotted off made it. So their LP little A stayed up. Yeah. 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 It's a, it, it, I remember learning in med school, you know, junk DNA introns, right. You know, like it's madness. The amount of things we were taught that were quote unquote, we're smart enough to know idiopathic junk DNA. We make up all these names for that, which we can understand, but I'm, I've come to the conclusion now after spending all this time in integrative and functional medicine that there's not a single thing in our body that's vestigial or has no purpose. We just haven't figured it out if we haven't figured it that's out yet. But right. Mark, guys like you are doing the figuring out and I'm grateful for your time and giving you. You know, you. all this wonderful wisdom to the world and frankly, helping change lives and helping people stay on this planet in a healthier way. You know, if, if I'm going to live on this planet, I want to live with my mind intact and my body moving forward. If it's not, either of those aren't working, I don't want to take up space resources or anything from people. So thank you for giving of yourself to do that. I'm going to give you one last question. I've used up an hour of your time and I don't want to push myself okay. here, but 
Mika, one last question I ask all the guests, and this is you get a golden ticket to go up to Congress or the president. (laughs) I'm not too sure which one would be functional if they give you you a response to your ticket. But I'm going to let while you think, I'm going to tell you mine. I I have one thing I would change. I would put my entire heart and soul behind putting a chef in every kitchen of every school in this country, and they're not allowed to eat anything but whole, minimally processed, high quality, very colorful nutrients as a stopgap measure to the dysfunction of the poverty system and the poverty cycle of the United States of America. What would you do? I think that you're dead on. Nutrition is the key. It is absolutely the key. And unfortunately, our food industry doesn't follow any sort of reasonable guidelines. So unless you can dictate (laughs) how to make food, the only other way to stop it is just don't buy the food and make it yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we see how well that's working for us so far. So I do a lot of praying and hoping, but so far, not money answers. And you and I Uh, hope we have what's called the square life curve, you know, which we go along very healthy. We're jumping out of an airplane with a parachute, laughing and drinking a bottle of bourbon. There, there you go. Amen. <laughs> Helicopter skiing or something of that nature is what I'm looking is what I'm looking for. You got yeah, it. Yeah. Mark, I am grateful for your time. I'm giving you the final word. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure being with you. And thank you for what you're doing as well, getting this information out to all these people. And you know, if all of us stick together and keep working like this we will make a big difference and we'll change medicine. Amen. So what did we learn here today? We learned a ton. You know, for me, the most important piece of this conversation is that cardiovascular disease is preventable. Cardiovascular disease is something that is mitigatable even when it has started. Coronary vascular disease is starting at the earliest points in our lives, in utero. And coronary vascular disease is affecting a large percentage of humans on the planet, especially in developed countries. So knowing all of those pieces of information, we have to start now asking ourselves the question, how do we unwind this problem, this construct of modern reality, this lifestyle genetic mismatch that we have. And Dr. Houston has laid out exactly how to do that. We talk about it from multifactorial approaches. How many levers to pull on? Nutrition, clearly a big one. Exercise, clearly a big one. Mental health stress control, clearly a big one. Micronutrient exposure via diet or supplementation, clearly a big one. And many others as discussed in the podcast. And here is a premier researcher looking at how to prevent disease, not just with modern medicine, which as stated is very important, i.e. statins if needed, right? PCSK9 inhibitors if needed, but not just stopping there, looking at function, not just number, right, of particles in the body. And how do we help our LDL and HDL particles function better so that they're actually doing their job of reverse cholesterol transport and all the other functions that they have, including dealing with infectious diseases, dealing with xenobiotics, and many of the, of the other pieces of the dysfunctional pie that make up cardiovascular disease and hypertension, as Dr. Houston stated. And so that's the biggest piece of this conversation that needs to be screamed from the rooftops for everybody, because when we're going to our cardiologist now and our internal medicine doc, and we're just getting 
the drug, the statin, or the PCSK9 inhibitor, and nothing else, we're not doing the best job that we can for our patient. As stated, there are so many layers to this. Mitochondrial biology, oxidative stress, mitophagy, how well those mitochondria are living versus dying. The function of, again, the HDL and the LDL particles. How is all of that playing out in our biology? Are we exposed to too many foreign chemicals, xenobiotics? Are we having massive problems with oral microbiome damage, intestinal microbiome damage, right? And we, we sort of covered a lot of this stuff. And as stated in the early discussion around ancestral and anthropologic history, these genes are not mistakes. They are mismatches of where we should be and where we are, right? And we got into some of this stuff where HDL is the good cholesterol, well, not so much. HDL is great when it is functional, right? There's a U-shaped curve with HDL biology and HDL number and death, right? So if you have too many HDL particles or not enough HDL particles, they're both associated with increased mortality. Why? Because we're making more of them and they're non-functional because that's a marker of what's happening inside the body from an infectious disease burden. Or if they're too low, they're not doing their job as well. And that's also a marker of risk factors based on familial hypercholesterolemia. Anything that causes more LDL particles, as we talked about, is a big problem. And they stay in circulation and form a gradient that increases your risk of ASCVD risk, especially if you have hypertension or signs of endothelial damage on the blood vessels. These are all super important things to be aware of up front. And again, these things happen for years, years, many of them, decades before you have your first heart attack. So there is a long lead time to this disorder that we have a chance to pull on levers to decrease or reverse the disease. As Dr. Houston stated in his clinic, he has the ability to do this through these processes. And I think that is the key. That is the hope. That is the biological understanding that the human body will heal itself if we give it the antecedent upstream reasons to heal. And that, again, as with everything in this podcast, is my goal, understanding how we can unwind things. And for me, that's all I care about in this world. Unwind the problem. Let's move forward with health. So we need to be spending more time looking at the cutting edge research and not so much time believing that today's data is the best, right? And especially when it comes to straight allopathic medicine. Again, as stated, I'm not shunning allopathic medicine. The drugs are necessary for lots of folks, but I am not happy with just saying, here's the drug, have a nice day, eat whatever you want, which we're seeing a lot in many different fields, including diabetes. Just take more insulin, you'll be fine. No, not the answer, right? These are very important theoretical beliefs that are now coming out to be true on scientific study, that we need to go back to understanding why are we upset upstream from biology? Why are we having more oxidative stress? Why do we have more dysbiotic microbiomes, right? And where is this all coming from? And again, we know this piece from all the data related to lifestyle damage that's inducing cardiovascular disease. I'm looking forward to more work being done in HDL biology, especially with the work of Dr. John Castelline and the effect of mutations in cholesterol ester transfer protein genes and increasing potential longevity and how there's a new class of drugs that may be coming out and maybe even herbs that pull on this same lever that helps reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease that may actually help us get rid of statins that have their side effects and move into a whole new class of medications coupled to the great work of lifestyle 
changes that helps our body move in the right direction. And I'm looking forward to continuing to follow Dr. Castellan's work and to understand how we can pull on the HDL function lever now, not the HDL number, but the function lever to help us get to a position of now, how do we help ourselves, especially with folks who have ApoE genotype changes like ApoE4. There's a lot more coming here and a lot more to understand. And I know Dr. Houston's going to be at the forefront of us understanding these biological factors and biological outcomes. So I look forward to following his career more, following his research more, following his lectures more, and helping to distribute this information to you. But I think at this point, this is a super, super important conversation because this disease affects everybody in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a family member you know or yourself personally. In my case, family members and myself personally. So this is a big deal. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Mark Houston. As always, I encourage you to rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts if you believe one way or the other, good or bad. Again, that's how I learn what you all are enjoying or not enjoying. Please send me an email at newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com if you have any comments, any uh, guests you'd like me to reach out to and talk to, uh, anything of the above. But as always, the end of the story is remember to hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for the advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. Have a great day.